everybody. Welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm Jonathan Carl, Chief White House Correspondent for ABC News. And I'm Rick Klein, Political Director at ABC News. Well, Rick, uh, I'm just back from Mexico City, so forgive me if I've got a little jet lag. You know, it, it, is, it was an international trip, as right, you know. Right, right, right. And, and all the planning you had. I oh, mean, my God. <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, but, uh, but what a week. Uh, Donald Trump makes his big trip to Mexico City, meets with the president of Mexico, gets the chance to play diplomat, and then goes to Arizona and delivers a uh, stemwinder of a speech on immigration. Uh, we've got more news on the Hillary Clinton front. Uh, her schedule logs, we learned, are going to come out from her time as Secretary of State. Complete logs of all her meetings, all her calls um, for all four years are going to come out nicely right in the middle of October. That's great. And we're going to talk to uh, uh, a chief spokesman for the, the campaign in a little bit about the implications of, of all of that. Uh, and a lot to get to as well in the in the way that she's handled it. Uh, some surprising foreign policy news as well. We also have news on the debate moderators. But, John, I, I don't want to hear the tale of Mexico. I mean, <laughs> you, you, there you are. You're on vacation, first of all, right? You're, you're just coming back from a few days at the beach. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Uh, I had been planning to uh, to fly out to Arizona to see the immigration speech. I had, you know, very civilized. I was going to take a ten thirty flight. I think it was into Phoenix. We were going to see the speech, cover it, and all that. And then, uh, what time did the news break that he was actually going to Mexico? Oh, probably ten eleven at night. And yeah. and by the time it was confirmed, and so you know, you're all of a sudden you're changing your travel plans, and you're flying down to a country you don't even know what the candidate's doing and where and when. Yeah. So I I, I got to tell you this. I've this was the craziest international trip I have ever covered for work. Uh, so you, uh, here we are. The news of the actual trip breaks at about 11 o'clock at night. But all we know is that Trump is going to Mexico. We Which is a big know. country. I, yeah, last it's I a checked. big country. Yeah. I, I asked at this point. Do we know for sure he's going to Mexico City? Right. I mean, you know. Uh, he could go to the border. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What, what, where the heck is he going? So uh, we, we didn't know um, for sure what city he was going to. We did not know what time he was going. And we didn't know whether or not we would be allowed within miles of where the meeting would be taking place. But we decided, and I have to admit I was greatly skeptical of this, we decided to book the only flight that would get me in with any chance of seeing anything, a 5.45 a.m. flight through Houston to Mexico City. I landed in Mexico City, uh, Rick, uh, at about 11 o'clock local time, not knowing still what was going on. Did not know the time of Trump's arrival, did not know. uh, But here's the thing, a little bit of insight, okay? Yeah. Uh, one of Trump's top advanced guys is a guy that I have known um, who actually was the head of security for the Washington Nationals in, in, in another lifetime. Great guy. And he was keeping me honest. I, I was giving him the names of the people I'd be with, and, and, and he promised to facilitate as they knew. Uh, I was going to say, it's possible they didn't know yeah, anything. Yeah, they didn't know the details. <laughs> uh, so, so we landed. We headed right towards the presidential residence. And it was after we got there that we actually learned the timing of all that. And then I, I ended up in the freaking front row center. None of the other uh, Trump press corps was able to get there because of, of the, the, the ridiculous uh, logistics of this, except for uh, my, my friend and colleague Jim Acosta with CNN, who was on a 6 a.m. flight out of Dallas. Well, you, you obviously made a better travel arrangement. And you, but you asked the key question, too, because you, you asked Trump, you asked Trump, did you get the, the president of Mexico, Enrique Peña Nieto, to agree to pay for the wall? And his actually, answer was... Let's listen to that exchange. The wall, is it a non-starter? Is there any chance Mexico pays for the wall? 
Well, I'll start. I mean, nothing like an easy question like that. We did discuss the wall. We didn't discuss payment of the wall. Uh, that'll be for a later date. This was a very preliminary meeting. I think it was an excellent meeting. And uh, we are, uh, I think we're very well on our way. We, we spoke about the importance of having the strategic alliance between both countries. I also spoke about my responsibility as the president of the United of uh, Mexico in defending Mexico and defending Mexicans both in this country and abroad. Yeah, so I asked that question directly, as you heard, of both men. Right. And, uh, you know, you hear Trump say that uh, the issue didn't come up, and you heard Peña Nieto say? Nothing. He did Nada. Nada is the Spanish nada. term for that. And, and, and then as, as they left, we kept on shouting it to him. So what about you? You know, the wall. And, and, and you know, what happened right after that? Silencio, por favor. <laughs> And to me, though, it left the impression because Trump was on his best behavior in Mexico, right? He's a oh solicitous. He's, he's complimentary. I love the Mexican people. We are going to work together. He sounded downright boring. He sounded like a conventional politician. Quiet. I mean, literally the tone of his, of his voice. Right. Was, his was facial subdued. expressions, everything was different. So you think, okay, so now he's heading to Phoenix to give this much ballyhooed, much expected immigration speech. He's got a new tone. Yeah, but this is the softening. This, we've all heard yeah, about. this is the softening. And I'll tell you, John, you know, a little, little behind the curtain to me, I had, re, I had pre-written a story about that, you know, anticipating <laughs> this is, this is dangerous, the new Rick. Right. Well, I didn't file it, but I, <laughs> you know, some notes. I'm writing a story about the new tone. I had to throw it out because that speech that he delivered had none of the softening. It was, it was among the harshest, angriest. Uh, strongest in terms of policy speeches he's given on immigration. He's given a lot of bad, bad, strong ones, right? He went out there and he gave one of the, the strongest denunciations yet of illegal immigration and his commitment to, to trying to root it out. And there was no change in policy. It, it, was, it was an amazing – how many miles you traveled for Donald Trump to travel absolutely nowhere on policy? And, and for a, uh, a week in which he had talked about possibly softening, he had in the famous – Sean Hannity town hall last week. He had suggested that, well, maybe this idea that we have to deport all of the 11 million or so uh, undocumented immigrants, that maybe, you know, maybe the good ones uh, right. should have a chance to, uh, to to get some form of legal status, not not citizenship, but some form of legal status. Well, that's all gone. He, he was absolutely emphatic. He didn't say, I mean, the one thing, he didn't go the complete to the complete and utter extreme of saying we're going to round up every last one of them and get them out of the country. He said they all had to go back. And they're all subject to deportation, but subject. not that he would deport them. And, and that's a change. And, right. and so maybe it, it is that there's a different policy here. Just but, there, but he did talk hidden. about a deportation force of sorts within – But for the, the illegal – for people that have, that have, for the that have done bad things. So, and he suggested so, there's about two million of them. But let me tell you, if that was a softening, I don't know what we're watching anymore. Ann no. Coulter loved the speech. Uh, Ann Coulter last week. tweeted, and we, we had her on last week. <laughs> she was a little nervous about this softening. Boy, she tweeted uh, basically that he was uh, better than Churchill, right? Churchill had a good turn of phrase, but man, this is this is my speech. And then she said she's going to listen to it every night before she goes to bed. I Isn't mean, that, it's very yeah, sweet. it's really <laughs> it's really heartwarming. It really, yeah, uh, it is. So that so Trump, I think, is now made clear where he is on immigration, uh, or as clear as he's going to be in terms of in terms of policy. Is it going to uh, hurt him though? I mean, it, it, I it's so I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, we, we've I, seen members of his Hispanic Advisory Council sure. resigning. Um, uh, uh, Criticizing him for this, uh, revoking you know, a couple of revoked endorsements. 
Um, yeah, and, and, but you know, this is this is him dancing with those who wrung him. I mean, th- yeah. this is this is the this is him doubling down on that coalition of voters, calculating that there's enough. Uh, enough folks who are just simply fed up with immigration that's the scourge of civilization and that it's responsible for national security concerns. He kept talking about it's the number one priority, the biggest thing we have to do. And and he's counting on people agreeing with him. And even that's, if that sacrifices minority votes, he's making a big push for minority voters, as we know, talking to black church uh, even this weekend, uh, talking explicitly to Latinos. But this was not I saw Corey of... Lewandowski make a bet with David Axelrod on live television. Did you see this? No. The bet was... That uh, Corey said that Trump will do better among African American voters than Mitt Romney did in 2012. Do you recall what percentage of the votes of the African American vote Romney got in uh, in 2012? I'm putting you on the spot here. Five. Very good. God, Rick Klein's good. That's why he's the political director. Six percent. Six. So, so Corey Lewandowski six. boldly predicted that uh, that Mitt Romney will do better now, than six percent. But didn't Trump say when he's reelected he'll get ninety five percent? Ninety five. That's in four okay, years. Okay, so I mean, we got time to work on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's, so that's, so uh, obviously this is you know this is. Um, this is all made for a, a robust and quick response from the Clinton campaign. So Hillary's been doing what exactly? Yeah, she's been out campaigning five or six events today. She held a couple of press all conferences the yesterday. Right? Yeah. She's doing – we're going to have uh, – oh, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> wrong <laughs> note. Wrong. Wait a second. Uh, Hillary Clinton's um, uh, been doing very, very, very little. She did have a, an event of her own in, in Ohio. She's she's uh, you know She's been out there a little bit, but she's been doing uh, incredibly little except for raising money. Yeah, and and I and think raising this, boatloads of money. Totally, and I th- I think we could look back, John, at this at this two week period, and you know there'll be a lot of histories written that say she was either brilliant or yeah. overconfident in this time. You know, the, the, she had a chance. Yeah, the we polls saw, have tightened. With the polls it, have tightened right after the convention. They started to be some separation. Trump was getting in his own way. Since then, Trump has mostly been behaving himself, not picking new fights with people other than the Morning Joe hosts. Uh, but uh, Hillary Clinton, who had maybe an opportunity to, to put some separation, went underground and raised money. And now, now, so the smart side of it, you're right. If she can she's dump this all money, the money she needs, in the that's fall. right. She's fine. She's spent a lot of time. And how with, many uh, people are paying attention in the last week of August, right. et cetera, et cetera? Right. Last couple of weeks, just last us. Three weeks, just she us. Hasn't done much. Just, um, but you know, the other story that really caught my eye this morning, I, I have to admit, I almost uh, fell out of the chair. Uh, <laughs> did you see this? Uh, Henry Kissinger and George Shultz, uh, the former secretaries of state, of course, uh, for uh, for um, for Nixon and for Reagan, and so much more than that. I mean, these are the two yes. godfathers of Republican foreign policy. These are over both, half a century. I mean, well, yeah, these, I mean, yes, go, these go, are icons. I mean, absolutely. Uh, uh, Shultz, on the record, tells Politico that he and Henry Kissinger may issue a joint endorsement of Hillary Clinton. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, wow. Somewhere Bernie Sanders' head is exploding. Oh, my goodness. I, I mean, think about, you know, the broad implications of that. And I mean, they, they've been – not only were they the former Secretary of State, these, are, these have been the mentors for generations sure. of Republican foreign policy, establishment foreign policy – Experts. That's right. You know, cabinet secretaries, th- diplomats, uh, thinkers, politicians, people that worship at the altar of uh, of those two men uh, in the, on the Republican side to see them flip potentially. And and they make clear also that there's no chance that <laughs> they're going Trump. George Shultz saying, no, that's not going to yes, happen. Yes, that's uh, off the table. Yes. And you have seen I – mean, Trump has at times – he met with Kissinger. He's, he has tried to find ways to, to cozy up to that – 
foreign policy establishment. They have not greeted him with any kind of any kind of a warmth. Uh, you know, we, we've you know we even saw uh, Paul Wolfowitz endorse Hillary Clinton. Maybe in the, also in the category of endorsements, you may not <laughs> thank want. You. Thank Thanks you. Thank so you. We're not going to put that one on the press release, but thank you for right, that. Right. But uh, but that would be neocons a, for Hillary. <laughs> A new coalition. But well, actually, be- yeah, this is, I mean, you, you, that's a great point you raised because this shows that basically the entire spectrum right. of Republican <laughs> foreign policy because Wolfowitz is on a very different side of that that's spectrum right. than, than Henry Kissinger. Um, the, you know, uh, he, he's the neocon interventionist, Henry Kissinger, realpolitik. Uh, the entire spectrum of Republican foreign policy, if this in fact happens, will be firmly, firmly and publicly in Hillary Clinton's. It, it, astounding! Can't wait for Trump's response about you know the you know those. those I don't know failures, if it's bad in some those sense. Losers, I mean, you know, I mean, those losers, know. Kissinger and Schultz. <laughs> we can we can imagine that. Uh, and and I mean these are the guys that brought us, uh, you know, uh, Vietnam and part of Vietnam. I mean I, there was a guy named McNamara that had a little bit to do with that, but uh, you know Vietnam, Iraq, uh, you know Iran Contra. You can have a lot of time. And meanwhile, John, we finally got news on the debate moderators uh, striking. First of all, congratulations to our Martha colleague Martha Raddatz. Can't How wait awesome for that. that? She's you know, so well-deserved. She's just kicked butt in the debate four years ago in our primary debates this time. That'll be great. Uh, co-moderating alongside Anderson Cooper, the second presidential debate. I was struck by the, the fact— That's the town hall debate. That's the town hall debate. interesting, and you so, never know what's going to happen. I mean, it's the hardest one to prepare for oh, because you're, real you're dealing questions <laughs> from the audience. Yeah. Uh, but but you know remember Donald Trump made a big show out of objecting to the dates of of these debates and how they were going up against NFL games and he was going to go get him changed. Guess what? He didn't get him changed. The dates are exactly the dates that were announced. Yeah, the negotiator didn't wasn't able to negotiate somehow, some way. It didn't happen. And and you know you the, know what we should do and l- l- let's issue this right now. Yeah, and I I'm, I hope. Uh, um, we have uh, 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 David's uh, our, our producers listening to this. I hope he's okay with this. Uh, I want to say that because of Trump's concern about the audience share that could be lost uh, because of NFL football, let's say that we will invite Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump to do a debate here on Powerhouse Politics, and we will do it anytime, any place. We can do it. Uh, you know, when, when there is not a football game in sight, we will do it right here. We can do it in our studio. Uh, we'll even come to them if we have well, to. If we have to. I mean, if we have the budget for that. We'll yeah. have to work that out. But so, sure, I'm, I'm good are with you, that. Are you, are you in? I'm another presidential debate. Why not? Uh, so, you know, what do you, what do you make of these of these moderators, though? I mean, a couple other headlines. Lester Holt gets the first, the first one. We mentioned the, the, the joint uh, town hall. Elaine Quijano from CBS. Uh, congratulations to Elaine, my old colleague at CNN many, 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 many years ago. And then, uh, and then the, final, uh, the final debate, Chris Wallace uh, from, from Fox. Fox has never had a debate moderator before. Um, you have to wonder about how that all comes to pass. I mean, you've got you know you've got a candidate who's now listening to Roger Ailes, and uh, yeah. uh, you know the, there's a lot of tense negotiations around these things. On the line right now, Brian Fallon, uh, uh, spokesperson for the Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, longtime friend of the Powerhouse Politics uh, uh, program. Uh, Brian, are you with us? How are you guys? I'm here. Doing great. Hey, uh, Brian, so much to talk to you about uh, this week, but, um, but, but we were, I, I want to get right to something that's been on, on the, the, the top of my mind here as we were talking about uh, all the news this week, and, and, and you know, I ran down to Mexico, was at that, uh, that little mini press conference with the, uh, the Mexican president. But, but just a, a, a tactical question I wanted to ask you. If Hillary Clinton uh, is elected president, I imagine there's a good chance that you would be, have some kind of a job in, in the White House press office. I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, a big one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, what would your advice be on when she should hold her first presidential news conference? 
<laughs> Thanks for the question, John. Yeah, sure. You know, fantasy baseball team doing, by the way. First, <laughs> first place, man. <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, look, you know, I suspect we will do a press conference uh, <clears throat> before too long. Pardon me, by the way, I'm a little bit under the weather. I suspect we'll do a press conference before too long. Uh, but look, we are taking a major step uh, just next week. Uh, we are going to be uh, moving to an even larger plane than she currently travels on in order to accommodate all the traveling press that cover us on a day-to-day basis. And so I'm sure that will bring with it a lot of uh, opportunities for additional access to the candidate and uh, interactions between her and the traveling press corps that covers her every day. So we are uh, very respectful of the press uh, and the job that they have to do. Uh, We have done a lot of interviews, um, but I know that no matter how many questions we may answer in a variety of formats, it is the press's job to always demand more access. We respect that. Uh, and so we're going to seek further ways to accommodate that in the in the remaining months of the campaign. But but I'm, I'm but seriously though on on this question, put put aside the campaign, and, and that's great that you're soon going to do a press conference, uh, or, or may soon do a press conference. But my, um, my my question is, as president, what what model? I mean, we know like for instance, John F. Kennedy during just three years in office had sixty five uh, uh, press conferences. I mean, w- well, you know, uh, you know, almost two a month for every month he was in office. Uh, Bill Clinton had a similar number over eight years, so fewer, less frequency, but 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 still, uh, uh, you know, the, in ninety four he actually had seventeen press conferences, more than one a month. What what is her model going to be? I mean, it's we, we, none of us have ever seen a, a presidential candidate uh, of. of at this level um, to, you know, go an entire campaign without doing a press conference. What, what, what does she do as president? Is that the kind of approach she has or does she suddenly decide she likes press conferences? Uh, well, John, is there an obligation? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess that's no way. Is there an obligation long, as president that doesn't exist as, as a presidential candidate? Sure. That, and that's true. And we would concede that. And, but there's a long way to go between now and then. And, uh, you know, we, we have stood up, a transition team uh, in Washington, uh, just as the Trump campaign has. There's a new law that took effect in 2010 uh, that now uh, creates for a more formal process. So both uh, uh, general election nominees will stand up transition teams and have office space provided uh, in Washington. Um, but even there, uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, those those announcements about the transition team have provoked a lot of questions and speculation about um, potential personnel announcements that would be made in a potential Clinton administration, and all that stuff are, are, are questions that we are really not entertaining because uh, we are focused on one goal and one mission, and that is getting 270 electoral votes. So I certainly have not thought through, nor do I think anybody here has, in terms of what approach she would take as president on in respect to uh, any of these questions. Uh, I think I could safely commit that as President Hillary Clinton would hold press conferences, but, but the frequency of them is something that uh, I think is uh, is something that would just play out as time went on. Um, I think that in general she would continue to take questions in a variety of formats, and I know that there's been an intense focus lately on press conferences. The reality is in the course of this campaign, she's answered questions in a variety of formats. Uh, we have very unapologetically put an emphasis on doing local media interviews in this campaign. Uh, that is something that the, uh, President Obama in both of his campaigns also emphasized, because that is, we have found, uh, the most um, uh, successful way of communicating directly to those voters in those battleground states. Um, but then we've also mixed in a healthy amount 
of national interviews, including national television interviews, with all the major television networks and the cable networks. Uh, she just did an interview with Chris Wallace uh, about three weeks ago. Uh, and so she's done Sunday shows. She's done uh, dayside cable interviews. Uh, she does, from time to time, do gaggles on the road with her traveling press corps. And I expect the pace of that will uh, quicken based on the fact that we're going to be literally traveling on the same plane with those uh, national reporters as of next week. So, so, so Brian, on the on the plane, let me just ask you, I, I've spent a lot of time over the over the last uh, many years on campaign planes with presidential candidates, and I've seen different approaches. Romney had a large plane that, her, that his camp, that his press corps traveled with. But he almost never ventured behind the curtain uh, back to, to where the press was. We almost I mean, He was on the same plane with us, but he might as well have been in a different time zone for most of the time. Um, John McCain, on, on his campaign plane, the, the first time around he ran, I mean, he, the guy, you couldn't get rid of him. Um, he was constantly on the record and constantly uh, answering questions. Uh, you know, m- most are somewhere in the middle. How much do you expect she will interact with that traveling press corps on that plane? I mean, will she be spending, you know, will, will be she going back and interacting with reporters, or will there be kind of a, you know, a, a, an iron an iron wall between, uh, iron curtain between between her and the traveling press? I think the amount of interaction can only go up, John. So I think that she'll interact with them um, uh, to a good extent uh, when, we, when we're traveling on the same plane. I also think that, um, as you know, and as Rick probably knows, that a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the interaction can sometimes happen in, in off the record settings on those on those buses and trains and planes, and even throughout the last several months, uh, even for as much focus as there's been on uh, press conferences or gaggles, there have been a lot of opportunities for. Um, uh, the reporters to get to know and engage with uh, Hillary Clinton in, in a lot of private settings uh, in the course of the of covering the campaign, and I expect that that will um, that will increase as well uh, as of next week. So I think in general um, there's going to be a healthy um, interaction level of interaction between uh, Hillary Clinton and the reporters covering her. Uh, again, we're 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 extremely respectful of the role that the press plays in this campaign. Uh, they are an important way for us to communicate to the voters, and they have a job to do in terms of keeping us accountable, and we, we seek to be respectful of that uh, on an everyday basis. So, Brian, speaking of planes, Donald Trump got on one this week and, and surprised everybody by popping down to Mexico, accepting an invitation from the Mexican president. Uh, the, according to the Mexican government, they made a similar invitation to the Clinton campaign. Does Hillary Clinton plan to visit Mexico, meet with the Mexican president before the election? I don't know if she'll meet with him uh, in Mexico before the election, but I can confirm that we received an invite just as Donald Trump did. Uh, The Mexican president is somebody that Hillary Clinton knows and respects, and I suspect that she will meet with him again soon, whether it's before the election or not, I couldn't say. Uh, I think that in general, um, that day backfired on Donald Trump. I think that uh, you could see sort of the tug of war going on within the campaign in just the, the two uh, dueling appearances that he made that day. On the one hand, he clearly went down to Mexico with a goal of trying to soften his image here in the United States by extending a hand diplomatically to uh, an, uh, a neighboring country of ours that he has antagonized throughout this campaign up till now. Uh, but then I think whatever goodwill he may have uh, tried to create earlier in the day, he uh, completely frittered it away with the speech that he gave in Arizona that night, where I think you saw a doubling down 
on hate and the bigoted style of approach to the issue of immigration that marked his primary campaign. He essentially uh, reiterated his call for mass deportation of undocumented immigrants here in the United States. And I think that anybody that was, you know, pretending that there was a pivot going on within the Trump campaign, I think any of those hopes were dashed with the speech that he gave that night. I, I suspect Kellyanne Conway was on the losing end of that internal debate, and Steve Bannon and Trump himself prevailed in the approach that he took in that speech in Arizona. Brian, how much did that scramble your your guys' reaction? I mean, you were expecting, I I presume, as we were expecting, a softening in rhetoric. He had said as much. I feel like the the responses we started to see from your camp was to say, well, don't don't believe him now, believe him before. Then to see him go back in that direction, how does does the campaign – adjust that when you, you you saw a candidate who seemed to be moving and he seemed to then head back to where he where he started this this whole journey well our reaction was that it, it pretty much vindicated our view which was the trump that you saw during the primary is the real trump uh, i think people have been assuming that he was sort of play acting uh this hate-filled uh approach that he took throughout the primary and that at some point he would pivot and try to make himself more amenable to a general election audience. And uh, here we are deep into the general election. We are at the Labor Day point, and the race, uh, the dynamics of the race are pretty well set based on the way he has approached this campaign ever since clinching a nomination in May. You saw a convention speech from Donald Trump, which was not at all differentiated from a speech he might have given at any point during the Republican primary. And now here, on the eve of Labor Day, you saw him double down on his approach on immigration, further alienating a core constituency, uh, the Hispanic vote, where he is performing extremely poorly. And so I think it just shows you that there's no pivot, there's no makeover coming in these next two months. Uh, What you see is what you get with Donald Trump. And as a result, I think he has done nothing to expand his appeal or expand his base in any way. In fact, this all seems like just an attempt to consolidate uh, the Republican base, which he has had trouble uh, getting to coalesce behind him uh, all the way up till now. And yet, Brian, there's no doubt that Trump over the last few weeks has been setting the agenda. Uh, He has dominated the news cycle. He's been out. Uh, He's been campaigning. And we've seen Hillary Clinton. We haven't really seen much of Hillary Clinton. She's done a, done a few events over the past uh, three weeks. But this is one of the quietest uh, periods I have seen uh, for, a, for, for a party nominee ever. Uh, she's raised a lot of money, obviously, closed-door fundraisers in California and, and on, on the East Coast. But what, what is, during that time, we've seen the polls tighten. Has this been a mistake to, uh, to basically concede uh, the, the, the territory to Trump? Um, and, and are we going to see a change as we get into the fall? She seems to be running the uh, clock out. No, not at all. And it's a fair question. I appreciate the opportunity to address it. First of all, in terms of the poll tightening, um, let me just uh, spend a minute on, on that. Our view is that it is inevitable that the, that the race will even further tighten than what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Uh, there was no doubt that coming out of the convention, uh, we had a pretty significant bounce I think that owed to the fact that we ran a very successful convention. I think that um, highlighted effectively uh, the Stronger Together message that we've been promoting in this campaign. And so we had a bounce uh, of a nature that you would expect uh, for a successful convention like the one that we had. But then we we almost had a prolonged bounce, an almost unnaturally prolonged bounce, 
because not only did we stage a successful convention, but right on the heels of our own convention, Donald Trump proceeded to spend several days in a row shooting himself in the foot, um, uh, most markedly by insulting a gold, gold star family. And so I think that extended the sort of convention bounce period for us in a way that probably distorted the overall outlook on the race. Um, we always perceived that the race would tighten around Labor Day um, because once Donald Trump stopped uh, committing unforced errors, he could probably get a little bit closer to consolidating the Republicans that defected from him again uh, after he went after the Khan family. And that would naturally mean that the race would tighten a bit. So the, the, the dynamics of the race are, re are returning to the equilibrium that we sort of thought that uh, they always would after our convention. Uh, that was just probably a little bit delayed in happening because of Trump's own uh, unforced errors. In terms of the pace of our schedule for the last couple of weeks, uh, we advertised uh, well in advance of the last couple of weeks that we were going to be spending uh, the tail end of August making sure that we have the resources that we needed for the stretch run of the campaign. And so, yes, she has mostly been in the last two weeks crisscrossing the country, uh, holding events, ensuring that we have the resources. And yesterday we made an announcement about our fundraising totals for August, and we we're very proud with the support that we've uh, been able to muster. Uh, and as a result of that, that is what is responsible for these, our ability to uh, make a very significant ad reservation over the next two months in the critical battleground states. In fact, this week we announced that we're now going up on the air in Arizona. And uh, we have reserved approximately $80 million in television over the next two months of the campaign. Uh, compared to a very paltry sum that the Trump campaign has announced in terms of where they're going to be on television. And then, uh, correspondingly, we have invested significant resources in field staff across the battleground states. And uh, just this morning, you're reading reports about how the RNC's field program has failed to materialize in these battleground states. So we think going into the final two months, we're going to have a significant advantage in both the television airwaves and in the ground game. And that's all been made possible by the types of uh, resources that we've been able to raise, especially over the last two weeks. So uh, this was all part of our plan in terms of how she spent these last two weeks. And starting next week, we're going to be back out on the trail full time again, starting with an appearance in Cleveland, Ohio on Monday. And Brian, before we let you go, I want to talk to you about one headline we saw today, uh, Politico reporting based on a conversation they had with the gentleman that Henry Kissinger and George Shultz say they're contemplating uh, an endorsement of, of Hillary Clinton. Wanted to play for you uh, something that I'm sure you're familiar with from the debate season. This is Bernie oh, yeah, Sanders. This. this is Bernie Sanders talking about, uh, well, he calls him Henry Kissinger. I happen to believe that Henry Kissinger was one of the most destructive secretaries of state in the modern history of this country. I am proud to say that Henry Kissinger is not my friend. I will not take advice from Henry Kissinger. He wouldn't take an endorsement, I don't think, either, would he, Rick? I, I, I doubt it. So the question is, would, would Hillary Clinton take an endorsement from Henry Kissinger? Well, Rick, I saw that report in Political this morning. I don't know what the basis of it is. We have it's not an interview heard, with George Shultz, uh, so it's, a, it's on the record. Yeah, we have, not heard, we have not heard from Mr. Shultz or from Mr. Kissinger on this, nor have we sought uh, their endorsement. Um, so uh, we'll just have to wait and see. I, I would say that I think that it says something that even individuals that uh, across the board, Republicans, independents, including those that served in previous Republican administrations, are, are coming out of the woodwork saying that they're inclined to support Hillary Clinton, even when we're not asking them or uh, to do so or seeking their endorsement, they're doing it anyway. I think it's a testimony to uh, the, the degree to which Republicans are fleeing uh, the prospect of a Donald Trump. Uh, presidency. So, but I, I don't have any ability to 
uh, know what Henry Kissinger's intentions are. We have not asked for his endorsement. We're not seeking it. All right. Well, I hope at least there'll be a joint press conference with uh, with, with uh, Secretary Clinton and Secretary Kissinger uh, if the endorsement comes down. Um, I, 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 I endorse that idea, by the way, Brian, if you're looking for some advice. Um, or we could do a joint press conference with you if you win your fantasy league's championship. Yeah, yeah, so, so, yeah before you go, so I, you, you, one of the things that people don't know about Brian Fallon out there uh, is that he is – one of the most devoted uh, uh, fantasy baseball people that, that that I've ever met. He's I a mean, legend. I mean, he's, he's a legend. Yeah, There's like a five l- teams uh, that going some going back uh, a decade or two. Uh, how, how are, are you still doing it? Do you still have your teams? And how are they doing this year? Uh, at my most involved, I probably had six teams going at one time. But I'll be <laughs> honest and say that all of my teams are in last place this year. I've spent <laughs> zero time. Uh, I think I auto drafted all my teams this year, John, and I don't <laughs> think I've made any. I don't think I've made a single waiver wire acquisition in any of my leagues. So I am I am paying my dues in all the leagues, but I am going to be finishing last in every league. You know, you're a Red Sox fan. You don't have any Xander Bogarts. You don't have Mookie Betts. You don't have Jackie Bradley Jr. What, what, what's going on? I've only been to one baseball game all season long in person, so it's just been a very bad year for for. Uh, for baseball watching, uh, but I'll make up for it next year, including in fantasy, and I look forward to getting back and beating you next year, as is the normal way things should work. <laughs> All right, I don't think that's happened yet, by the way. Hey, Brian Fallon with the Clinton campaign, thank you for joining us here on Powerhouse Politics. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. So, uh, fantasy that, baseball that's, that's Hall of Fame. I mean, that shows that there's some sacrifice here. That's right. Uh, this is what this is this is what running for president is all so about. So there was a headline out of that: uh, Hillary Clinton as president, if she is elected, of course, uh, would hold press conferences. He expects. I we, think he we, expects. We, 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 we don't know how many. I think and, and a press conference before it, too long now. It was plural, right? Wasn't it? I, that's right. He I didn't I, say hold a press conference. He I, said press conferences. I, you know why they didn't do one. When Trump was on the ropes a couple of weeks ago, when the Khan family fight was going on, I mean, he, she could have had a, a news conference on a Friday in the summer, and it would have been ninety percent about Trump. The problem now is it's been so long; it'll be so expected, and you know, it's going to be about the emails and the foundation and the work and Bill Clinton and and you know, conflicts of interest and Henry Kissinger, and there's just so much else that's that's involved in it. Uh, but it's good you know, practice for a debate. Hey, hey, hey why not? Why why not? Hey, we're, we we uh, we have one more uh, key thing we want to get to in Power House Politics, Rick. I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but uh, but we, I believe we have right now um, uh, here on the program uh, one of the true talents at ABC News, one of our most dogged reporters, covers Capitol Hill, the White House, campaign stuff. Uh, Allie Rogan. Allie, are you here? Hey, John, I'm here, but I was wondering, who is this person you're talking about? <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that person in a bit. Yeah. No, Al, Allie, that Allie, next. Allie, thank you for joining us. Allie, uh, you, as as I uh, uh, I understand it, were out in Arizona. I was actually supposed to be there with you, but they diverted me to go to Mexico City. We missed you, but you were the one out in Arizona with Donald Trump at the big speech. You were there uh, talking to the supporters. You even spoke to the famous Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Um, uh, who was who was on hand? Uh, right. So what 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 was uh, what was the scene out there? First of all, what, what were those people thinking as they were watching him go down and declaring his uh, his great friendship with the president of Mexico? Well, it was interesting. I talked to a lot of supporters outside the speech. So uh, bear in mind that I was talking to these folks, 
after he met with uh, the Mexican president, although a lot of them were in line while that meeting was actually happening. So they didn't see what he said. But in terms of the stagecraft of that meeting, they were all praising him as saying uh, this is something that he would have to do if president. He's showing his ability to conduct foreign policy. And they also used it as an opportunity to criticize Hillary Clinton, saying that it was a big deal for them that Donald Trump took the invitation of uh, President Peña Nieto first before Hillary Clinton. So they were excited about that. I also asked them what they thought of this notion that Trump was going to be softening his tone on immigration, which obviously a few hours Hours later, we found out that wasn't really yeah, happening. Yeah, Oops. Really. <laughs> um, but so, so that was sort of the, the premise that I was asking them a, a lot of these questions. And they actually seemed, they were telling me that if he had come out and sort of carried a softer tone, that they would have been okay with that. That for them, uh, they understood that politics demands that sometimes when you get into a general election, you have to modify uh, your tone and your message a little bit. But again, that didn't happen, so that idea went out the window as soon as he opened his mouth on stage. And Ali, uh, the, the the sense you had of that crowd, this felt like a return to the primaries to me. This was not, uh, this certainly wasn't the kind of gentler tone of, of Donald Trump. Did you sense the the kind of, for lack of a better word, anger in this crowd among these supporters that you you heard Trump? trying to channel on that stage. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, he is speaking to uh, the whole speech. He was just slinging up red meat, and they were eating it up. Um, as with a lot of his events, when he says those words that, I'm going to build a wall, everybody knows what comes next, and they're chanting it along with him. Uh, that absolutely happened last night. They were finishing his sentence that Mexico is going to pay for the wall. And, of course, this came hours after there was that whole controversy about whether he and the Mexican president had actually discussed that. <laughs> and uh, he uttered that that uh, that infamous line that, you know, Mexico doesn't know it yet, but they're going to pay for it. And the crowd just went nuts. I mean, the whole thing was just uh, it, it, had there been any waning of that excitement when it comes to immigration, uh, that all went away as soon as he got on stage. First of all, also, he was introduced not only by Sheriff Joe, who's an immigration hardliner, basically the deportation superstar, uh, and uh, as well as Rudy Giuliani, who came on with that Mex Make Mexico Great Again also hat. So <laughs> really, really how does that, trans the that translate into the Spanish? Yeah, I, I, I think it got lost in translation. But the whole, the whole speech was just, as soon as it began, it was clear that this was a return to the uh, message we were hearing in the primary. And and that that crowd seemed to eat it up. I mean, the uh, we, we could certainly and I obviously didn't get there. I was still in Mexico by the time the speech uh, uh, took place. But 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 how how into it was that crowd? Oh, they were so into it. It was exactly what all of them wanted to hear. And I think just the fact that a lot of them had been reading the and, and hearing on on you know us and and all other news sources that there was a chance that Trump would be moderating his position a little bit on immigration. I could sense a, a little bit of relief in this audience that he really wasn't doing that. Although I will say what was interesting to me in that in that room was people were eating up what he was saying, even though, I mean, he still said everything as angrily as he said it previously. But the words he was saying were slightly different. I mean, we heard him say a year ago uh, in September 2015 that, you know, if you're here illegally, you've got to go. And now he was saying... Everybody who's here illegally is subject to deportation. And that's, mm, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's, yeah. it's, it's subtle. It's, it's almost too subtle for anybody to have realized it was happening. But when he focused on the 
you know, deporting criminals who are here who have committed crimes. That's a slight calibration from what he was saying previously, but he was saying it in such a way, talking about how he was going to use that task force to deport Hillary Clinton, that it got it got shrouded in the rhetoric that everybody was so excited about that I think any uh, substantive tweaks, and I think there were some, kind of got lost in that overall sense of anger and frustration that he was still tapping into so strongly. It was, it was tone, Rick. Yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and, and when he got to that point where he talked about the extreme vetting, and he used the word extreme, I think it was five times in the, in the course of three or four sentences. Yeah. It was, it, I, I was thinking of, you know, of uh, Barry Goldwater and the 64 Convention, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice, um, which was, a you know, in moderation in the face of evil is no virtue. It, 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 it was, uh, you know, th- th- that had some poetry to it. I mean, Trump just embrace that 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 word extreme yes on this i am extreme yeah and and i think uh, tone for him is so much more important than the substantive policy that's what his supporters i'm sure ali you found that the same before we let you go ali i wanted to ask you about the other arizona story you're out there this week covering the primary the john mccain primary he won really comfortably got about 52 percent of the vote i believe against four challengers including one main challenger who was described as kind of a of a mini trump and then in the immediate aftermath Alley, uh, yeah. he's out with an, an ad uh, talking about the need to uh, to play defense against Hillary Clinton's presidency. Is he going to give up on Donald Trump? Uh, is Donald Trump already given what he can, which is to get him through the primary? Well, it's interesting because there was a lot of talk before the primary that John McCain was going to come out and say Donald Trump is is destructive and a terrible candidate and blah blah blah. And he's not really saying that, but he's he's saying kind of again that Bob Dole message where people realized that he wasn't going to win, and so they started changing the message to focus on on. Congress. And that's exactly what he's doing now, saying he released a five minute video today saying um, I need to be in the Senate to act as a check on President Hillary Clinton. I mean, those were his words. He's basically saying he assumes that Clinton is going to win. So it wasn't that he came out and started immediately attacking Donald Trump, as some thought he might do after he won his primary. But he's absolutely saying I've lost faith in his ability to win this. So I'm going to tailor my message now to making sure I preserve my seat. Yeah, and it's, it's it seems like a, a little little survivor uh, at the end of this. I mean, he got he gets through he all the attacks and everything else, but he doesn't really need Trump as much as he did just a week ago. Absolutely. I mean, Kelly Ward based her whole campaign on a John McCain is old and he's going to die in office. Which, yeah, that was interesting. Uh, <laughs> which was super interesting. And especially um, his mom's one hundred and three, by the way. One hundred and three, and she's out there and she's active. So she the was idea. Never a POW, dude. Right. Yeah. Um, so the idea that he's slowing down, uh, I I see him all the time in the halls of the Senate, and I would beg to differ with that. He's one of the most uh, boisterous kind of personalities in the Senate. But in addition to that, her other message was that John McCain has not fully embraced Donald Trump. And uh, that she had, and that's why she should be elected over him. And clearly that message, although it resonated very strongly with a a certain percentage of the Republican base, it didn't go as far as it needed to in defeating him. So the idea that uh, he was going to lose because he isn't fully wrapping his arms around John McCain, that certainly didn't happen. Now, the challenge for him going forward is this challenge from his Democratic opponent, Ann Kirkpatrick, who is going to be tying John McCain 
extremely closely to Donald Trump. As we get into the general, the big question there is, does that message resonate more with Arizona voters enough to get them out to the polls and elect uh, the Democrat who really is putting the biggest challenge to John McCain that he's had in, in all five elections he's run so far? But, but it is something, though, that, that in this year of Trump, the season of Trump, not one of the many Trump primary challengers going up against establishment Republicans yeah. One. I yeah, mean, we saw, you know, uh, Rubio easily do away with uh, with, with his challenger, uh, McCain. I mean, the House with Paul Ryan's challenger. Pun. Yeah, Paul Ryan's challenger. I mean, they, 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 there, were, there were no shortage of efforts to unseat these guys. And what Republicans are saying about this is this shows that it's not a movement. It's a man. And whatever happens with Donald Trump, they'll still have a party. This is their hopeful side. They'll still have a yeah, party boy, on November that's 9th. That's what you're hanging your hat on. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Allie Rogan, thank you very much for joining us, and welcome back to Washington. Thanks, guys. And I believe that is it for Powerhouse Politics. Now, a reminder, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and tune in or wherever else you find your podcast. I tend to find mine on the Apple Store, iTunes. Because you're old school. I'm old school. Old school podcast. Please subscribe to our feed. Give us a rating. You know, all of that. Tell your friends. Tweet at us. What's what's the hashtag people can tweet at us? Powerhouse politics. Hashtag powerhouse politics. That's it's kind of easy to remember. Nice it's a lot, a, lot of, a lot of letters, so you, it kind of limits what you can say around it. All right. Well, we're off to Labor Day weekend and the the real, the real fall campaign coming up next. Thank you for listening. Thank you.